Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, step right up. Behind this curtain lies a ghastly concoction of delight, horror, fantasy, and terror. Your every wish is our command. Your every whimsical desire brought to life. But I'm warning you, there's always a price. Welcome to the greatest Welcome back, foils and ghouls, ladies and germs, all you kitties out there, all of you fans of Talking Terror worldwide and nationwide. We're back. It's Talking Terror, brand new episode. So happy for you to join us tonight. We're going to be covering the Ghoul Beats pick tonight from 2009's Antichrist, directed by Lars von Trier. So it's going to be another Ghoul deep dive, if you will. As you know, last week, the Mad Monkey will not be joining us again until September he is taking a break. Apparently, he needs a lot more vaccines than we thought. So Nurse Johnson is going to be taking care of him. In the meantime, I still have to give him his bubble bath. So trust me, not looking forward to that. Uh, the demonic Dr. Dave is going to be joining us in a little while. Uh, I'm sure he's got a lot to say since he's been gone for a couple of weeks. But, of course, I am joined by the ghoul geek himself. He hit me until it hurts. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, what's happening, everybody? What the fuck is going on? So happy to have you all here. So happy to be back uh, for your pick tonight. No need to apologize, Ghoul. Like I said, I kind of appreciate it when you take us down the dark corridors of the off-beaten mm-hmm. track uh, with some of these movies. Yeah, unfortunately, you know what? I always like to do a little bit of research into the films before I uh, just go and pick them on a whim. In this case here, it was like, okay, I'm uh, I'm looking for something, and I forget exactly what made me choose this one and it was yeah, it was a little more off the rails than even I think I was prepared for <laughs> yeah I know like you, we always talk before the show starts we usually have our show prep and I remember you apologizing to me and you didn't know and I did because I I mean we'll get into it later but I had already seen it so I already knew what to expect but I knew that you guys didn't so I wasn't going to say a word I was like let me just let it play out <laughs> let them uh-huh. see what is in store <laughs> oh, something was in store, all right. Something was in store. <laughs> it, indeed it was. Uh, like I had said, uh, the Demonic Dr. Dave will be joining us tonight at a certain point. He's going to be a little bit late as things happen. Um, you know, so uh, to kick off a little bit of not horror news per se, but kind of reality. Um, as you know, Jennifer Rubin, who was in Nightmare on Street Part 3, uh, she played Taryn White in Dream Warriors. She was also in... Bad Dreams uh, with Dean Cameron from summer school. Uh, She has posted a GoFundMe page for her sister Annie, who is currently suffering from MS. So as you know, that's a very bad thing to have. And medical bills are mounting. So she's trying to get the word out, trying to spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those good places for this campaign that's going to be running through August. So you have until the end of August to contribute. I will be posting the link later tonight after the show. So you guys could check it out, see if you want to donate a little, donate a lot. Um, if you donate $50, Jennifer will sign a picture for you and send it your way for whatever address you want. So that's a $50 donation. But you don't have to do 50 
You can do $1, $5, $10, whatever you see fit. But it's an important cause. Jennifer is a friend of the show. She's a good friend of mine. So whatever you guys can do, it would be helpful. Absolutely. I mean, you know, multiple sclerosis is a uh, is a terribly difficult disease. And, uh, you know, it is a hard thing to watch somebody you care about go through it. And it is, you know, it can be real expensive with treatments and, and just getting things put into place to help the person be more comfortable. Uh, so, yeah, anything you guys can uh, can put out there, it's you know, much appreciated. You know, just look at it as in you help the universe, something will, will definitely come back and help you one day. It's all that good karma. And it's like I said, you don't have to feel obligated to donate $50 if you don't want a free autograph. You can just donate $5. You know, every little bit counts, and especially when it comes to these causes that are medical-related. You know, these are things that are close to my heart because I want everybody to be healthy and wealthy and wise. So her older sister, Annie, deserves all the help that she can get. So I'll be posting that link later. You guys can check it out. If you want to donate, please do, and it will be running until the end of August. Indeed. So there is that. Um, There's also one thing I wanted to talk to you about, Ghoul. Uh, we had talked about it last week. It's the James Gunn situation. It's happening over at Disney with his firing. Okay. I don't know if you saw the letter that got posted earlier this week from the entire cast of the Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, basically begging Disney to reinstate James Gunn for the third entry. Yeah. No, I have not. Um, you know, and unfortunately, as great a uh, a gesture as that is. I feel like, unfortunately, it's just going to be futile. Um, you know, Disney's done what they did. They're not going to go back on it. Uh, you know, it's just their policy. And, I mean, unfortunately, it's, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I mean, believe me, I hope that he does come back um, this week. Right. You know, the Avengers film dropped finally on digital. And, yeah. uh, yes, you know, of course, I uh, I grabbed it right away and have watched it one and a half times. You know, I watched it <laughs> yesterday, and then I went to sleep to it, you know, just a few hours later. Uh, I am so happy that that film holds up the way it, I, I remembered it. You know, it was such a fantastic movie to see in the theater. I only got to see it the one time. Um, watching it again, you know, I just, I was once again, just transported into that, that world where they just seem to seamlessly interact all these different, different superheroes and different characters. And, you know, you got your guardians in there and you got your Thor in there and you've got this awesome Thanos story set up and, and yeah, it'll be a shame if, uh, you know, without gun coming back, you know, if whoever takes over the guardians reign isn't, you know, going to at least keep things the way they're supposed to be. You know, it's always hard watching another director fill somebody's boots where they want to be able yeah. to show their own, you know, their own style, their own their own humor or their own things. But at the same time, too, you know, Guardians is synonymous with what James Gunn has put out there for it. Right. So you don't want that thing to be so fundamentally different. It's not like the Thor series where each Thor movie has been, you know, just completely a different animal each time with thankfully getting it right finally with Ragnarok because, you know, I don't know, the first Thor Thor movie had its its ups and downs. 
Dark World is one that I'd love to forget even fucking exists. And then you got yeah. Ragnarok, which was just a balls-to-the-wall fucking outrageous fun fest. Um, but no, the uh, the Guardians films have, you know, felt the two that we've gotten were very in line with one another, and everything just seemed, you know, very naturally flowing. And I don't want to see that interrupted, but if it is, it is. I mean, obviously nobody's going to not buy the Infinity War movie, which, you know, that that's what these nope. things always come down to. If you want to make a change, guess what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to stop seeing the Marvel films for a little while. You're going to have to actually protest. You're going to have to not buy things from Disney, which, you know, they own our souls. So we're fucked. Oh, and yeah. so is James Gunn, unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's the reason I wanted to bring it up is because um, when that letter came out, it was a very kind of sweet letter about James Gunn and even Michael Rooker uh, played Yondu. You know, it said, listen, I don't agree with the jokes, but it was 10 years ago. I think you guys need to lighten up. But there was a second, like a momentary second earlier this week where people were starting to think that maybe Disney was going to go back on their word and rehire him because of this, um, of the letter, because they, were, they hadn't picked a director yet. So a lot of people were saying, well, maybe they're just kind of seeing how this goes, seeing how well James Gunn is received. They'll rehire them, but unfortunately today the news came out that Disney is not budging on their decision. They're looking for an mm-hmm. A-list director for the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and basically they don't care what the cast thinks because they're contractually obligated to be in these movies. You can't walk. If you guys walk because of James Gunn firing, uh, we'll just sue you then. So Disney yeah, but that sucks too, though. That sucks, too, because you know what? You want your cast happy. You know what I mean? These are all things that have been fundamentally important to the success of these films. Mm -hmm. You know, you you want these people to be in there and enjoying what they're doing. You want them to be in there and be able to feel like they're doing what they've been able to do with these characters. Fucking Disney will probably just bring J.J. Abrams in, you know? They've got him around for the fucking (laughs) Star Wars movies anyway. You know who should be capitalizing on this right now? Fucking Warner Brothers, man. You know what? Hire James Gunn to make something in the fucking DC universe that is awesome. Okay, let him fucking blow everybody out of the water with something over there, man. Get on your shit and do that, DC. Sorry. (laughs) No, but that... (laughs) I agree with you, though. I mean, I, I didn't think of that until you just brought it up, but that would be the greatest fuck you to Disney if he said, oh, uh, he's available now? Uh, let's bring him on. We got some script ideas. Let's see what he can do because he's successful. And that's the greatest, I think, revenge. I have a fucking idea, man. Green Lantern, Green Lantern and their whole fucking Green Lantern corps and, corps and all that shit takes place in space, yeah. just like Guardians of the Galaxy does. You can <laughs> yeah. work with that. You know, the guy's already got experience with that kind of universe. Let him fucking do something with it, man. And just don't bring back Ryan Reynolds and we're all set. Yeah, of course. But, yeah, that, that's the one thing that kind of got me is that, you know, the cast was so adamant about him being coming back, and you can't make another one without it, but... Like I had said, Disney doesn't care because they'll just be, all right, so you guys are walking. All right, well, then you're all seen. And then we'll just replace you with somebody else. You know, they, they got everybody by the balls. And they know that their ball's in their court, so they don't care. You know, say what you want, you know, but he's not coming back. I just can't see anybody Listen. replacing what James Gunn created. Well, again, whoever's going to be doing it is going to have big shoes to fill. And, I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, this will be... The death knell for Guardians. You know, maybe maybe they do another Guardians film, and that is kind of what ends up ending it, because it doesn't 
work right. But, you know, you never know. Maybe somebody comes in and does something fucking great. You know, I'm not going to... Whoever they end up hiring, I'm not going to hold the firing of James Gunn against them. I'm not going to go into the films saying, well, I'm not going to like this movie because James Gunn exactly. didn't fucking film it, man. That's wrong. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, it is what it is. You know, there are plenty of talented directors out there. There are people out there with great ideas. Do I want to see Gunn finish what he started? Of course I do, but... That is up to Disney, and if they're making this decision, they have absolutely every right to do it. If they feel like this is against their policies and against what they've built as a company, I might not be a fan of it. I might not agree with it, but it is absolutely their right to do it. Sure, and I believe we are now joined by the demonic doctor himself, Dave. Welcome back. Thank you. I am here. President accounted for. Sorry for my uh, my tardiness. Apologies, <laughs> um, So, I guess what what policies are it that we're currently discussing? Jump right Anal into sex and and ass beats. What what is what? the right size to actually use? And when Why you start, did this? You know when when you're going for your prostate. You know what I mean. When when you and, and the doctress or whatever whatever your female is called. Um, the when when she's going to hit that special spot for you, like where where do you start at? Do you start with small beads, or do you just go fucking balls to the wall? Like, hey, bitch, get those big balls up my ass. Well, I mean, a pair of anal beads usually starts with like a tiny bead at the end, and then gets progressively larger. So I guess that it would be a uh, smaller to larger. Uh, based on the row of beads that are size. Interesting. Good to have these fun facts about our hosts. Uh, but we're actually, we were talking about uh, James Gunn and his firing from uh, Disney as Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, my God, it's so fucking stupid. Yep. What's your input on this before we move on to another topic? Uh, so my input on this is, one, I have never seen a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I don't know anything about James Gunn. I, ha- I don't know his background, his past, his history, but from what I understand, uh, some people somewhere dug up some tweets of his from you know, over a decade ago that some people might have construed as offensive, and you know, Disney immediately fired him um, based upon that. Uh, is that what is going on? Yeah, so far. It's based so, on 10-year-old tweets. I mean, based on the fact that Disney in its history has made some of the most racist movies ever made, uh, one they won't even <laughs> release because it's, it's called Song of the South. Maybe they should just say Song of the South, man. That is a bad yeah, one. Uncle, <laughs> yeah. Uncle fucking Remus. Uncle fucking Remus. Hello. Zippity day. So uh, I understand that in this absurd age that we live in, the immense swell of social media outcry and dismay is maybe uh, causing companies to try and get a jump on anything like that and squash it before there is some kind of massive public outcry. Uh, I don't know what the context of those tweets were, uh, but from what I understand, uh, James Gunn maybe got a little bit shafted here uh, from this. Um, I know that just the other day, and they said they wanted to take a little time to digest and to reflect and to think 
but from what I understand, the entire cast of Guardians of the Galaxy put out a letter uh, completely 100% supporting him. Uh, that right. and the kind of any kind of attitude surrounding whatever those tweets are is just not non-existent in this human being that they know and have worked closely with for several. Are there two, two of those movies, two Guardians of the Galaxy movies? Yes. Yes. That Plus there's been universe. that he has been nothing but a but a but an absolute professional and a true gentleman, uh, you know, and that's what the cast says. You know, uh, I feel that this is possibly, and, and again, I don't know what the context of these tweets were, but I feel that in this case it might be a bit of overreaction. Uh, I can only imagine. Uh, the dumb shit that I might have said when I don't know how old he was when he made these tweets, because uh, I don't know how old James Gunn is, but I can only imagine the dumb shit that I might have said when I was a kid on Twitter. Um, you know, just like every single person walking around might have. Um, thank God when we were kids, there was no Twitter. Um, well, I mean, anyway. I, mean, no. I mean, these are the two tweets, okay? I mean, the one tweet they say was, was making light of, you know, pedophilia, in which the tweet read, I like when little boys touch me in my silly place. Yeah, then the second mm. tweet was, you know, about rape, and I guess it was, the best thing about being raped is when you're done being raped, and it's like, phew, that feel, this feels great, not being raped. Those were the two tweets. Yeah, that's the extent of it. I mean, that's just stupid. I mean, it's a stupid thing to say. It's a stupid joke to make. Uh, You know, there was a time, and I don't know if that time is gone because I don't even keep up with stand-up comedy anymore, but there was a time where, like, rape jokes might have been common instead of a stand-up comedian. I mean, Sarah Silverman on Twitter has made, uh, has had tweets about uh, pedophilia and talking about, you know, like, how young is too young and jokes about, like, getting it on with young boys and ha-ha-ha asking for a friend, you know? I feel that in this case that they're going to go ahead and fire him for this that happened, uh, you know, however long ago. I, I feel like it's a bit of overreaction. I feel like it's a bit of overreaction. I think it's a bit of fear-mongering on oh, this is Disney, right? It's a Disney situation. Uh, I feel like it's yes. fear-mongering on, it's a little bit of fear-mongering on Disney's part. Uh, and, a, and a bit of a rash decision and overreaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now that you're here, Doc, what do you have for us uh, news-wise? Do you have anything you want to talk about? Uh, yeah. Um, I feel like I saw some stuff. Uh, forgive me for my, my, my kind of harriedness. Uh, today took a no little bit longer getting home from work than usual. And, um, you know, so I'm just kind of loading up all of my equipment and getting ready to roll here. Uh, so, uh, more chatter, you know, I don't know if the people that, uh, were involved in this are just trying to keep their names out there or keep an idea floating alive, but, uh, you know, the, the people that were trying to get the sequel going to the 2009 Friday the 13th are still, uh, talking about reasons why it didn't happen. Now they're talking about how, uh, they didn't want to make the movie because, uh, you know, I guess it was one of those situations where rights were going to revert uh, from Paramount uh, back to New Line, and they were afraid yeah. to make the move Paramount because if it was successful, they were then going to lose the rights, and New Line was going to benefit from all of their hard work. 
Um, I just feel like every couple of weeks there's these people around Friday the 13th, 2009 that are talking about why it, why it never got made. And maybe it's just time to, to let it go. I, I saw that. I was like, all right, we're still talking about this. <laughs> yeah, well, we talked about that when we talked about the, the last time we talked about the Friday the 13th lawsuit and the video game and everything like that where I had said it seems like every other week there's another article about why there can't be another Friday the 13th movie. I mean, the whole thing is a mess, like, the, like you had said, Doc. The Paramount got the rights back, and then all of a sudden they lost them, so it was going to go back to Warner Brothers and New Line. They didn't want New Line to benefit from their creation, which I understand. If you're Paramount, you don't want to make a great Friday 13th movie. Everybody's like, yes, that movie fucking ruled. But then you lose the rights, and you have to watch another studio take over and gain all that popularity again. So I can kind of see where Paramount's coming from. But it's just it's such a messy situation with Friday 13th. I don't see any resolve coming anytime soon. I don't know what you think, uh, Jewel. Uh, you know, I mean, when it comes to shit like that, you know, will they eventually churn out a fucking, you know, less than stellar sequel, reboot, something or another? I'm sure. I, I, have, I have no doubt that all of the property owners to Friday the, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, I assure you all, there is no way that they are not going to be watching what happens with this upcoming Halloween very closely. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we've brought that up on the show before. If Halloween is a hit, and I'm sure that it's going to be, I'm sure it's going to be a monster hit come October, because of all the press that you're doing, you're I going guarantee to you that... Yeah. What, ahead, whatever needs to be done, whatever needs to be done with all of those lawsuits involving the intellectual Friday the 13th property, that shit's going to be settled immediately. Uh, and you're going to see all kinds of stuff going into production with all kinds of existing properties. Now, last I know I missed the last couple of weeks, and I know that last time I was on the show, I had talked about whether or not the new. I think maybe that's when the new trailer for the, the trailer for the new Halloween movie uh, had just come out. Uh, but yeah. I I was talking about whether or not this was going to start some kind of trend where uh, subsequent editions of movie series are going to be ignored and stories are going to continue from previous uh, incarnations. And I see uh, it has been confirmed that the next Terminator movie has started production and filming and it's ignoring everything but the first two movies. It's, it's not, yeah, I was going to actually bring that up, too. I saw the, uh, the, the first couple of images they've shown of the girls, uh, Mackenzie Davis and, of course, fucking, you know, Sarah Connor, Linda Hamilton. Yeah, Linda Hamilton is coming back. Uh, looking pretty damn badass. Okay, so they're only going to do Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. They're going to ignore every other movie after that. Yeah, well, I mean, basically the, uh, you know, the film, we, we talked Terminator actually last week a little bit, and because uh, I kind of went on a Terminator kick and purchased yeah, all the Terminator movies <laughs> on, uh, on Xbox and ended up watching them all in a, in a weird scattered order. But, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the reboot, repurposing of the world that they did a couple of years back, you know, even though that was lined up to be a trilogy in its own right, they've decided to, to yeah. pretty much wipe the slate clean with that, and now they're going back and they're doing, you know, they're doing the uh, the movie coming straight off. Now, this isn't in response to the Halloween thing. This was something that they kind of figured on doing after 
you know, even though that uh, Terminator movie that came out a couple of years ago, uh, Genesis did make some money. I guess it didn't perform yeah. to the expectations that they wanted. So they decided at that point, I think that the rights were going to be reverting back to Cameron anyway, and they're they're going to work this through now. I think Skydance has got their hands on it, and they're looking at a movie in December of 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be good. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I, I didn't really care for much of the sequels after part two anyway. So if they want to do that, no. I'm, I'm on board. You know, I'm, I'm ready for that. Because after, after part two, the series kind of fell apart anyway with a lot of the storylines. I mean, you know, I don't know. That's that's the weird thing about going back and watching the Terminator movies. Um, you know, real, realistically, none of them make sense when you fucking think about it anyway. So even when you look at the very first film and the world that was established there, it really didn't make any sense. Um, you know, the second film obviously will always have such a, a huge spot in my heart. Uh you know, it was fucking T2, man. It was a fantastic experience to see in theaters. It was a global phenomena type of deal. Arnold was larger than life at that point. We got the introduction of Eddie Furlong, and fucking Linda Hamilton went from being a soft fucking waitress to some badass-looking bitch with guns that would fuck you up, yeah, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not just talking about the yeah, fucking uh, weapons. I'm talking about those arms, too, dude. No, um, the way... The way... The way Carpenter shot that sequence when she's doing pull-ups on her flipped-over bed in the mental institution. Cameron. Uh, Cameron. Sorry. I'm sorry. My next thing has to do with Carpenter. That's why it's on the brain. Uh, Cameron, <laughs> the way he framed Jesus. the shot of her doing, doing the pull-ups on the flipped-over bed in the mental institution, like ripped mm-hmm. to spread bad ass. Um, yeah, she's just that good. I'm looking so again, yeah, the sequels did get messy, and you know the third one didn't do itself any favors, and then you know whatever that Salvation one, which was supposed to kick off a trilogy, and then that flops, mm-hmm. and then they went to the whole Genesis thing, and like I said, I mean that movie made money, um, seemed like it was going in interesting directions. I, I would have loved, I really, really, really would love to get my hands on. I guess whatever kind of scripts or treatments or whatever was, you know, put out for that, just to see where they were going with that story, because I really would love to have seen that concluded. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't mind the Genesis actually. I mean, I didn't mind it at all. I and mean, it was kind of cool to see them kind of go back to the 84, you know, timeline. I mean, it, it was interesting, um, you know, and, but they obviously aren't going back to that. They're doing a new thing now. So we'll see what happens. I know Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess, was on set recently to do his scenes, yep. so he's going to come back. So, always good to see him. Um, so we'll see yeah, and it looks like they got what? the kid that plays Ghost Rider in the uh, Age of the Shield show is going to be the new Terminator in this one, so... Oh, okay. Well, that could be good. I mean, I like him in Age of the Shield, so I'd like to see what he can do. The, uh, like the Terminator. evil Terminator? Uh, yeah, I believe so. And from what they've shown of the images of the women, it looks like Mackenzie Davis... Um, might also be a Terminator. She's got scars in specific spots that you see in one of the images that, you know, looks like she could have been opened up for inspection or some shit like that. Mm. Who knows? Okay. You know, well, we'll see what they end up doing. I'm sure it'll be convoluted and make just as much sense <laughs> as all the other films do. do. Yeah, of course. Uh, so what did you have about Carpenter, uh, Doc? That, well, it is, it's been known uh, that he was going to be doing the music for the upcoming Halloween 
which he is, and uh, he's working on it with his son. And at one of the recent Comic Cons, uh, you know, Green was saying how, uh, you know, that the original uh, score, the original Carpenter music is going to kind of be the base, but that there's also going to be some new and inventive, excuse me, new and inventive twists around it. Which sounds cool, but the little piece of information that I found to be kind of interesting was that the score for the new Halloween movie is also going to have bits of and familiarities from uh, some of the score created for Christine and also uh, from Big Trouble in Little China, kind of kind of weaved in there in some way also. Yeah, we had talked about that last week, about how he's going to incorporate kind of themes from Christine and Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, I'm on board. I mean, John Carpenter, right, I, I think, is one of my favorite composers. Uh, I didn't know. Films. I would have brought that up if I knew you had talked about it. I, oh, it's I fine. wasn't here last week. Well, and... I mean, you were off, you know, so, you know, you didn't know that we talked about it. But, yeah, we did. Uh, but I'm on board with it because I love John Carpenter as a composer. I think he's made some great scores for his films. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he brings to the new Halloween uh, but I was glad that you brought it up, Doc, as we're talking about Halloween, because <clears throat> I posted an article on our Facebook page about how Green, the director, found a perfect voiceover actor for Dr. Loomis for the new Halloween, because he wanted Dr. Loomis to be a presence in the film. And it kind of made me feel relieved, because I didn't want Dr. Loomis to be kind of a footnote in the new Halloween movie. Just, oh, yeah, that was a doctor, shot the patient, done, he died, that's it. I kind of want him to be more of a presence, and Green basically said he is. We're definitely going to have a Dr. Wilma's presence in the new film, so I'm kind of relieved about that. I don't know what you guys think, but I think they need to. Wilma's is the glue that holds that series together for me. Yeah, uh, I feel like that's a kind of interesting way to go about it. Uh, I remember things involving... Uh, Dr. Loomis and hearing uh, some, somewhere in one of the versions about, you know, possibly he has, uh, you know, recorded uh, interviews or trying to talk to Michael Myers over the years when he was his doctor. Uh, so right. I don't know what, I don't know what capacity they're going to use uh, this voice actor, but it would be interesting if, you know, I know that there's stuff where they talk about a trial so if we'll hear some audio yeah. that is supposed to be those interviews as Loomis worked with him as his doctor, um, it'll be curious to see how that comes into play. But I feel that that is a little kind of interesting aspect to it, you know. And I know that we have talked about this upcoming movie from a lot of different angles and a lot of different feelings. But I, I have to say, man, and all joking about it aside, uh, as it gets closer, like I, I'm, I'm kind of really starting to look forward to it. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Um, and before I get to the ghoul's opinion about it, it's funny that people are saying, oh, my God, yes, there's going to be a voiceover actor, and it's going to be Loomis, and we're going to get all these things. People forget that they did have a voiceover actor for Halloween H2O, which is actually Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob, did the Loomis voiceover in the intro for Halloween <laughs> H2O when they're examining the board. So there already was a voiceover actor for Loomis. It's just that it wasn't as prevalent. So I'm sure this voiceover actor, if they're saying he's as good as hey, they say Michael. he is and he sounds like it, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing how they do it, you know, whether it's trial footage or anything like that. Um, but I brought that up also with an interview that Jamie Lee Curtis just did for Halloween where she says after 
the events of 1978, there was nobody there to kind of comfort her or kind of deal with her and stuff like that. She was just by herself. And I can't imagine that Dr. Loomis, if he was still alive at the events of 78, that he wouldn't at least check in on her and just see how she's doing. I mean, he is a psychiatrist. Now, you would think that he'd want to check on her mental state. Yeah, you know, I we I talked I think I talked a little bit about this on on the Facebook thread about that, or in our messages. I don't know if that was yeah. on the public or on our private, but I don't necessarily know if that's the case. Uh, I feel like like his job, whether uh, whether he worked directly for Smith Grove or not, uh, his job was being the doctor for Michael Myers. Uh, sure, maybe like in the immediate aftermath, maybe he would check in and how see things is going, but I feel like unless in some way she's going to secure his services, um, you know, there's really no reason I would see him having any kind of significant uh, role in her life or her recovery. And another thing, and this is uh, one of, the, and this is directly from Jamie Curtis too, uh, one of the things to keep in mind with something like that is that in 1978, uh, the attitude towards kind of therapy and post-trauma therapy was much different than it was now. Like, the attitude of the parents of Lori Schroeder in 1978 might have been like, all right, this horrible thing happened, you survived, buck up and go back, to, now it's time to buck up and move on and go back to school. Like, much different than the way things are now with counseling and therapy. Uh, it was a different time back then. I had just read a some stuff from Jamie Lee Curtis about the character of Laurie Strode. And the article was more about the fact that the, that Michael and Laurie are no longer siblings. Uh, right. But uh, it also did talk about that particular thing, about how in 1978, uh, you know, that's what would have happened. So that, that's something I feel in that conversation needs to be taken into account also. Absolutely. And, and oh. well, that's why I wanted you to weigh in on about Loomis' presence in 2018's Halloween, and, you know, what we had talked about with Lori, as part of being somewhat part of her life, if not at all, after the events. I mean, it's 40 years later. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. I look at the original Halloween, and Loomis is pretty fucking old then, it seemed to me. So no. the idea that here we are 40 years later, the fact that his character is not in the film doesn't bother me at all. Um, I mean, obviously, if they want to have a little homage to him because of the importance of the character, I'm all for that. Um, you know, obviously, they can use a voice actor. They could have footage of him treating Michael or talking about Michael or, you know, a, a little voiceover narration where they're, they're reading some of his reports or something. Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like the character would be necessary um, for what they're going to do with this film. Just like he wasn't necessary for H2O. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. He, wasn't, he, he wasn't needed there because, again, here we are. That was 20 years later, you know. So here we are 40 years later. Things are a, a lot different. And, you know, kind of like what the doctor said, you know, back then, yeah, the parents – you know, I mean, therapy was has always been a, an evolving form of, of medicine. It was still obviously done back then, but things were in, in a weird transition point. Um, these days, you know, obviously kids need therapy just because, you know, they had a bad fucking match on PUBG or, or you know, whatever 
other fucking game they're playing at the Fortnite. Fortnite. So, you know, you, yeah, you have all of that there. But it doesn't bother me that they're really not doing all that much with Loomis. I mean, you know, I don't want to see someone try to portray the character other than doing a little bit nope. of voiceover. You know, so I, I, I'd rather keep it in my head that it's Donald Pleasance. It will always be Donald Pleasance. And I'm happy with that. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing. Yeah, so, know, like you had said, um, they could do that. Okay, good, Doc. I was just say, like from like this is like from Jamie Lee Curtis directly, and this is quote: uh, "Lori Strode had something happen to her that no one should ever have happen, and she just reacted in her intelligent way to save her life." Period. End of story. The movie ends. Curtis said, "This new movie picks up forty years later, and what happened is forty years later. There was no trauma therapy. No one went in and gave her mental health service. She was raised by Midwestern simple people who said, "Baby, you're okay." And she went back to school a few days later with a scar on her arm, and that's that. And now 40 years later, what you're seeing is, like, the post-traumatic stress disorder and the trauma that's compounded. And that's what you're seeing in Lori Strode 40 years later. She's the killer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that does make sense for the the time that was being. But, like, I wanted to say about the ghoul, what he said, I would not want to see – Somebody step in for Donald Pleasant to play Loomis in the 70s. No, 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 no. You know, I don't want to see somebody stand in for that character and be treating Michael in Smith's Grove and going, oh, what do you think, Michael? I don't want to see a stand-in. I am very happy with a voiceover actor to do some narration. I'm fine with that. Like in Halloween H2O, that opening segment is great because it shows you that Loomis never really gave up tracking Michael because he always thought that Michael would come back. And all you had was just clippings of newspaper articles. And pictures of Michael's mask and murder victims on this huge court board in his office. He had obviously died, you know, in Halloween H2O. He wasn't around anymore, but you could see his work and that he never really stopped. Obviously now, if Donald Trump is still alive, he'd be like 100. There's no way Wilmes come back. Even if they wanted mm-hmm. to bring this actor back, he would be, you know, 98, 99 years old. He's not going to be hunting down Michael like Van Helsing. You know, he's very much retired. Like in Halloween 6, when he was dying making that movie, and he had said, I'm retired. You know, I'm going to live in my countryside home and write my memoirs, and that's going to be it. So if Halloween 2018, all they have is a voiceover actor and some sketch drawings from a trial, I'm happy. I just want to have that homage, you know, to, to Pleasant and to Williams. And then we move on, and we focus on the new characters. Mm-hmm. Agreed, man. Agreed. Um, so what so else have you guys heard anything about I was going to say, have you guys oh. heard anything about the, uh, they've casted uh, Wendy and uh, Halloran for the Dr. Sleep movie? I was going to talk about that. Great. Uh, so what do you have, uh, Google, in that regard? Did you read anything on it? Because I can't remember the name of the guy playing Halloran, but I know that Alex Iso from Starry Eyes is going to be playing Wendy Torrance. I, you know, yeah, which really I love. I like the casting for that. I think yeah. she is. She has similar body structure and look to Wendy yeah. as far as how I mm-hmm. see her as Shelley Duvall. Um, you know, because again, that that's that's the weird thing with this because this is obviously the sequel to the book, not the yep. sequel to the movie. 
Um, no. I, I think audiences are going to have trouble with that. You know, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe I not. Do. I don't know. You know, things are fucking weird with that kind of stuff. But, you know, like, I, I, like the first thing that when I first read the article was like, oh, okay, I thought Halloran was dead. Because in the movie, he gets killed. But that's mm-hmm. because, again, in the book, he does not. And um, nope. that is where they're going. But, yeah, the actor is uh, Carl Wombly, who is going to be playing them. I know him from Supergirl. Um, yes. You know, he's just, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, somewhat odd-looking African-American gentleman. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say odd. He's not odd-looking. I mean, he doesn't look like fucking Beetlejuice from the Howard Stern show. But, <laughs> no. you know, he, he looks... He looks enough to the to the Scatman Crothers type of look to where yes. I can see him playing the the role well. But it is funny too that they're going with that kind of yeah, follow up when Scatman Crothers' character is the one that died. Yeah, and that's um, that's what I wanted to get the doc's perspective on because I know he's a fan of the books. I know the ghoul is a fan of these books. Um, I had actually posted on the Talking Terror page about this about the casting of of Holleran and Torrance. And I was kind of thinking, you know what, the more I read about this movie, I don't want to see it. I like the book because in the book, the characters are there, and you can kind of imagine Scatman Carruthers as returning as, Doc, as uh, Dick in the flashbacks, and you can see Shelley Duvall. I don't really know if I want to see new characters take on these characters, especially because it's from the movie. But at the same time, the book has, you know, the burned-down remains of the, of the Overlook, and I think, like the ghoul had said, I think it's going to confuse a lot of people that are fans of that 1980 Cooper film. What the fuck? Dick didn't die and the hotel burned down? And I get they want, obviously, you know, big names attached, this and that. But I don't know. Ewan McGregor is Danny Torrance. Um, I I don't like that at all. (laughs) I don't. Why not hire the actor that played the game? He's still alive. You know, there's there's no reason to not bring him back to replay the character that he played all those years ago, and wow, talk about continuity and the fact that it yeah. is the same fucking person. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wonder if they even approached him. You know, I doubt they did. I think they pretty much just said, Ewan McGregor, he's a Hollywood name. We'll attach him to this project. We're done. But I wanted to get the, uh, the doc's perspective on this whole thing because me, I'm not a, I, don't, I don't like it. I'd rather just have the book. I don't need the adaptation. Doc? I'm sorry, for which? Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to get your perspective on the on the Dr. Sleep casting of Ewan McGregor, um, and then the casting of Dick Holleran and Wendy Torrance. Um, for me, the book is great, but I don't need an adaptation. I'd rather just have the book. Yeah. So I have not read the book. I, I have. I really got nothing on this. Um, I, you know what I mean? Like, I haven't read the book. Um, I heard, you know, I'm sure I've read somewhere that they're going to make a movie out of it. I didn't see any of the casting news, but that's it's really just something that's completely off my radar. Um, it's just not, I really don't have any, any information or anything to add to this particular discussion because it's something that I am not familiar with at all. Um, did you read the book, Google? Or you haven't read that yet? No, I have not read Dr. Sleep yet. That's one that I mean to get to. And I just, you know, again, I'm like, Ooh, a monkey, you know, find something else to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, you know, what I was going to bring up, because I, out of the three of us, I have read the book. I actually bought it when it came out in 2013, and I ate it up. I read it in a weekend, because it was just really good. Unfortunately, like King, the third act kind of falls apart. But they do have flashbacks of Dick uh, Holleran. They also have flashbacks of Wendy as uh, Danny's growing up and kind of losing the shining a little bit due to alcoholism. He becomes a lot like his dad in the book. 
where he becomes just like a mean drunk, but he eventually goes to like a 12-step program and gets out of it, and he's sober and kind of dealing with his shining abilities. Um, it's interesting how they bring in those characters, but again, I just can't see anybody but Scatman Carruthers and Shelley Duvall playing these characters. So you're going to make a film adaptation, okay, I guess, but I'm just such a fan of those two people that I just can't imagine anybody else playing them. I just think it's it's one of those weird things to be making a sequel that is more in line with the book as opposed to going with a sequel that is more in line with the film that right. it's known for. You know, I think that's that's what really kind of throws things off a little bit there. And, I mean, if you're going to do this, then, you know, the better thing to have done would have been to just completely recreate and do a full theatrical you know, re- redoing of The Shining and going that route mm-hmm. with it to at least bring these these actors and characters into play that then you can you can go with, a, you know, a sequel like this. But, you know, again, we'll, we'll see. They'll do what they do. And my luck, I'll end up seeing it and be like, oh, it's the fucking greatest Stephen King thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I have no interest. Like I said, I like the book. Um, I'm not a fan of Mike Flanagan who's directing it. So I, I'll take a hard pass. You know, and if it does well and people see it, great. But me, I, I, I don't care too much for it. Um, as far as, like, a sequel to The Shining movie, I mean, I don't see how that's possible with the way that everything transpired. Um, I mean, even that, that 90s miniseries with uh, Rebecca DeMornay and Stephen Weber, even though that was supposed uh-huh. to be the direct lift from the book, it just it wasn't good. And it's just, I mean, and that was literally the book. Everything that happened in that miniseries happened in the oh. book. And I was like, this is supposed to be good, but it just didn't work out. Unfortunately, that's what happens when Stephen King gets involved with, you know, his adaptations, you know. I know that the, uh, you know, it's funny, but the monkey had brought up the Ready Player One uh, film that he he finally got around to watching, you know. And one of the big things in the movie is there's a huge scene that involves The Shining. Um, And it talks about how, you know, it's a creator who hates his creation, and that whole thing is about the fact that, you know, Stephen King doesn't like the popularity because he didn't like the movie of his book, so. And yeah, isn't Simon Pegg the creator in Ready Player One? And Shaun of the Dead and Hot Dogs and The World's End? Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, that's a movie I still haven't watched, but i got to check it out. It's a fun yeah, film. I, mean, I liked it. It's a fun film, but... I I just it's one of those situations for me where I enjoyed it when I saw it as you know a great you know afternoon action flick or whatever, uh, but like in a lot of adaptations like it's one that like couldn't hold the candle to how cool the book was. Okay, yeah, yeah so I haven't read the book I, uh, either, so I'm out. I see, and this is one of those where normally I am definitely like in your in your court with that. Um, the only thing I would say is all of the changes that they made to the film, I see why they did it. You know, you, oh, could, yeah, you, you, couldn't, you, couldn't. you could put that I on agree. screen the way the book presented certain things with it. I did find the book to be a, a more enjoyable experience. But I felt like the film was a lot of fun, too. And I've enjoyed watching it. The, you know, I've watched it probably two or three times since I got it on Xbox. So, Yeah, I never, said it, I never said it wasn't fun or that I didn't like it. And I fully, fully know there's no way you could have presented everything that was in the book. But the book it was would have been so boring, cool. too, that way, you know? 
in a way. But in putting that into film, you know what I mean? So much of that was more cerebral in the book as far as how they figured out the puzzles, what the actual puzzles were and all of that. Whereas at least in the movie, what they did was they made it action. I mean, like I said, I, I haven't read the book or the movie, but uh, that's the problem with all those adaptations, though. You know, book adaptations. You read it, and you get immersed in that world so you can see everything happening. And obviously, they're not going to put every single thing that happens in the book into the movies, and that's the biggest problem. The things that you want to see that happen in the book, they don't always put it in the movie. That's what always disappoints me when it comes to a lot of these adaptations. Yeah, I mean, and again, sometimes, you know, those, those things are done for stylistic reasons. Sometimes they're done, you know, just because they feel like it won't translate well into film. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, or they, they, they can't do it in a way that seems to make sense. You know, sometimes they just want to take whatever the source material was and then do what they want to do with it. You know, unfortunately, that's just just the way the fucking cookie crumbles, man. But I, I know the only other thing that I really wanted to fucking just bring up, because I know you've been excited about it, man. The new trailer for Venom. Finally showing what Venom looks like. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. You know, it looks... I have to say, I, I'm a little more excited to see this film now than I was from the original that first little one? bits that they were showing us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was the trailer that we wanted. And that was the thing that everybody said online. This is the trailer that we wanted from the get-go. You know, seeing Eddie Brock, seeing Venom fully the way that we wanted him to, you know, the possible tease of Carnage. You know, there's just so much in there um, that I wanted to see. I think they actually said that Riot is going to be the main villain in uh, Venom. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they handle that character. God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like it'll be work, a... It looks like it's going to be a fun little, you know, side shot type of a deal. Um, possibly, you know, launching its own little franchise. I mean, who knows? Who knows what we end up getting with it? My biggest worry, you know, because the one thing that I will say is that it did remind me very much, obviously with much better special effects, but it did remind me of the Spawn film from back in the yeah. 90s. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I got that vibe, too. I don't know why I had that vibe when I watched it. I mean, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. Like you said, you enjoyed it too. But at the same time, I had that Spawn thing going on. I'm like, this is kind of reminding me of Spawn. I don't know why, but it is. You know, but it, it, it's anything can beat Spider-Man 3 as far as Venom. So <laughs> whatever they give me, I'll be happy with. Anything's better than what we got with Spider-Man 3. So I'm happy with what we got. I think that Tom Hardy is going to be excellent. You know, that second trailer sold me. I'm like, all right, now I'm on board the Tom Hardy train for Venom and Eddie Brock. I think he's got it. We shall see. We but, shall see. There's another idea. But, Sony, why don't you hire James Gunn so that he can make a Spider-Man film? Why not? <laughs> I would love to see a James Gunn Spider-Man I think he could handle it. Um, but, you know, as far as what his faith is, we'll find out. I, mean, I think he's going to be fine. I think this whole thing is going to go away eventually. He's going to find his way back. You know, he's going to be hired again. It's not like his career is over. I definitely don't think it's over by any means. I think this whole thing is going to blow over in time. You know, he stepped away from social media, which is the right thing to do. You know, he apologized, and now he stepped away. In a little while, you're going to see him doing something. And hopefully it's going to be good. And hopefully it's going to be, bringing, you know, 
the whole cycle. They're bringing, they're bringing Alf back to TV. Yeah, there's All a little right. bit of Alf coming. Kind of caught that. Which I don't of what? don't know why, but Alf, you know, Alf coming back. Remember? You know the fucking furry mm-hmm. alien that ate cats. Alien life form. Oh, Alf, yeah. I don't know why. You know, I mean, it's like I, I mean, I guess it could be good with with the technology that they have these days to make a better Alf series. I just don't know if it's really needed. It's you know, are you really getting into the well now? It was such a great little snapshot in its time, you know, that mix of somewhat weird, raunchy, like comedy with a fucking Muppet, and that worked. I mean, I don't don't know. I don't don't think we need it. I'm looking, there's one other film that I'm like kind of looking forward to this year. I caught the trailer when I saw, oh, what the fuck did I go see? Oh, when I saw Deadpool 2. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it called? The, 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 the funny time murders, the happy time, maybe the happy time oh, the murders. Happy time murders. But it's the like puppets? an R-rated oh, that was great. fucking Muppets looking <laughs> yeah. thing. Yep. It looks debaucherous and just nasty. Muppets are it fucking like all over the place. Meet, it's like meet the fucking feebles, man. That's what it looks yes. like. Yep. Except meet the it, feebles. Uh, I, yeah. With Melissa McCarthy yeah, this, and all these fucking. This puppets. looks pretty good too, man. If you haven't definitely seen the trailer for this, that. Doctor, I would definitely uh, suggest you take a quick peek. Because yeah, there is a Red Band that you need to watch. Red Band right, the I'll, one is the one you need to watch. I'll have to check it out. Definitely cool. Um, but yeah, we'll see what they do with ALF. You know, it just makes you wonder how many other series they're going to try to reboot if ALF does a good job. It's like, oh, Every, I mean, they've, been rebooting, they've been rebooting series all over the place. So I don't think ALF is... I think ALF already is the... Is a product of the fact that so many of the reviews have been successful. I don't necessarily think that TV series are looking at Alf. They're looking at shows that have come back and have been successful already. Yeah, I feel that this is a trend that's Alf continuing to grow. Today's. I don't see where Alf is <laughs> no, today's society, saying. you know? I, I don't get it. I mean, it, it, maybe it could be good. I don't know. I, just, I don't see where he fits in, Look, like the Google website. It was a, it's, like, it's a huge, it was a huge hit show. And First time. all of these shows, all of these shows that are being brought back, are looking to try and capitalize on nostalgia. Not oh, where does it fit in today's world? They're trying to capitalize on the fact that people think, oh my god, I love that show so much. They're bringing it back. I can't wait to watch it again. I mean, not in any way trying to get into the discussion about what happened with the Roseanne show, but she was getting 16 million viewers a week. Um, oh yeah, it's a monster hit. So. It, 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 I feel like networks would be thrilled to get half of that with something. Uh, and Netflix was tremendously successful with Fuller House. I feel like these are things that, uh, you know, it's going to get a point where I feel that if it continues to be, there will be a, a, one of the situations where there's some oversaturation. But right now, yeah. where, uh, you know, network shows, uh, you know, film, movies, and theaters, uh, other than big, huge events, superhero movies and whatnot, uh, are 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 really struggling to get people in seats, to get new people to tune in, because there are so many different ways to view your entertainment. If nostalgia, if the nostalgia business is good right now, you're going to be seeing a lot more stuff being brought back. If they can rustle up original cast of people that are still alive, and et cetera, et cetera. 
You know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it, it, like you had said, the nostalgia train, I feel like eventually it's going to reach its station where it's just going to be like, how many more nostalgia things can you bring up? But if you could tap that well and you can make it work right, like you had said with Fuller House and the Roseanne revival, you know, anything's possible. Um, so we'll see what happens with Alf and, and any other show that they decide to bring back. But uh, for time purposes, I do want to get into the movie for tonight, Antichrist in 2009. But see, the, uh, but right. here's the thing, though, man. I mean, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I don't mean what's going on with all this stuff. But, like, those those reboots and stuff like that. Okay, like, so let, let's say, like, Fuller House and, like, even Roseanne. Yeah. I mean, those are live-action shows that are dealing with topical situations like family life mm-hmm. and things like that. Things that are still relevant to today. Things that are still you know, that are, are, are ongoing, they're growing, and people do have different family relations now, and there are different li- lifestyles today that get represented in shows like that, whereas I see something like Alf, where, you know, it was an originally created character, it was a fucking alien that lived with a weird regular family, so now we're going to reboot that again, and what, just have another fucking alien come down, I mean, why not? It just, like I said, it just doesn't seem like it fits into, like, what today's idea is of entertainment, man. I get the whole nostalgia thing. I get people will probably start tuning in right away once it fucking premieres. And what Alf, I, I loved it so much. You know what, though, man? I was a kid when I watched Alf. I might have watched, like, half of the first fucking season. I didn't even know the show lasted for four fucking seasons, man. I barely watched it when it was out. I just remember him being, like, all over the place, the stuffed animals, the cartoon, all that shit. And I was at that yeah. age where it was kind of like, eh, I'm kind of getting a little too old for this kind of shit, and moved on to, like, more mature things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it was a product of its time, like you said, with all the merchandise and things like that. I mean, it's, I'm wondering how long it's going to take before Harry and the Hendersons comes back. Somebody's like, oh, remember that? Yeah, I remember that. I had a TV show back in the 90s and a great movie. Let's bring Harry and the Hendersons back. <laughs> you know, you wonder, you know, how long it's going to take for those type of things. But, you know, as long as people wax nostalgic for nostalgia, I think there's going to be an audience for it, like the doctor said. I think, you know, once they see these things being successful, they'll start to see more and more of these old TV shows being revamped for modern audiences and being brought back. I mean, it's... It's inevitable, even like in theatrically. We had a Baywatch movie recently and a Chips Patrol movie recently. I'm not saying that the Chips Patrol movie was that good, but Baywatch is great. Baywatch is good, yeah. But that was taking a TV show and bringing it theatrical. Yeah, I mean, it's, but again, it it reverts back to nostalgia. But, uh, I mean, that's a whole discussion for another episode. Um, And I wanted to get into the movie tonight. So, Ghoul, you are up. Uh, it is Antichrist from 2009, directed by Lars von Trier. Uh, why don't you give us an intro to this lovely piece of cinema? Fuck. Lots and lots of fucking. Willem Dafoe's cock and balls sliding inside and outside of a vagina. Fucking. Yeah. A baby jumps out a window. More fucking. Talky, 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 more fucking, and then all hell on earth fucking breaks out, and shit happens that I'm sitting there going, what the fuck am I watching, man, and why? Um, yeah, what a weird fucking movie, man. I know I, I originally had wanted to do The Crow this week, but I pushed that off because I wanted the monkey to be a part of that conversation, um, so it was, you know, 
left to, to devices to figure out something quick. I, uh, I I forget even where I found it or what I input in as you know, shutter, a search that. of films, and I threw it in, and I found Antichrist and was like, okay, I'm going to go with that. It was this or Irreversible. Um, I went Antichrist, Ugh. and I did watch the beginning of Irreversible up until the rape sequence. Um, I didn't stop yeah, it. Yeah, I stopped it because no, I got other things movie. going on, and I a good one, but finished that fucking movie, but yeah, this, this, was, this was a film. It was. It, it was a weird one, man. So, again, for anybody who watched this and was offended by it, I'm sorry. Not really. I don't give a fuck. Um, yeah, there, there was a lot of There was a lot of fucking in this film. I mean, it was really, it was like one level away from porn. Yeah. Um, you know, Doc, what did you think about Antichrist from 2009? Uh, you know, uh, it's an interesting pick, for sure. Uh, this is one that's been on my radar or for quite some time, but it's one that I've never gotten around to watching. Uh, one, I am a huge fan of Willem Dafoe. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that while he has performed in a humongous amount of works, um, yeah, I mean he's got he's got somewhere between one and two hundred screen credits. Uh, I, as a huge fan of Willem Dafoe, I have not seen a large portion of his work, uh, but there are many roles that he has been a part of that I absolutely love. So I love the work that I I know of his. Uh, he's such a interesting interesting performer and interesting. Uh, actor. Uh, with that being said, uh, there, you know, Antichrist, Antichrist, when it came out, obviously there was a lot of controversy and hoopla about some of the content and some of the graphic sex that was shown on screen. Um, one thing that I, you know, I know that there's, oh, that the sex was real uh, and so on and so forth. Um, from my reading that when you do see penis sliding in and out and the sex and so on, uh, that was not actually, uh, Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg and that, uh, you know, and this is directly from Willem Dafoe, uh, that, uh, there were doubles that were used for those scenes, that there was actual sex that took place. Uh, but it wasn't the two, it wasn't he and she, uh, of the film. <clears throat> right on. So but the movie itself, uh, you know, it's been on my radar for a while. I, I, you know, it's one that I never got around to watching, to like to watch, like to sit down and watch a movie for, for pleasure and entertainment. Uh, you know, I wouldn't call this pleasurable or entertaining. Um, I'm glad I finally saw it. Uh, you know, so... I feel that, you know, maybe some of what has been said about this film is warranted, but um, it was certainly, certainly an interesting, interesting piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I had talked about before the doctor joined us, like at the top of the show, is that before the show got started and the ghoul and I were doing kind of prep for the show, you know, he kind of just laughed and said, I'm sorry. I didn't know, man. I'm sorry. And I was like, yeah, but 
I had seen Antichrist back in 2010. Like, I had already seen it because there was a time that I really wanted to get into Lars von Trier films because I kept hearing about how he's such a renegade director and he just goes out there with his films and he just does things that no other director would want to do. He's this Danish madman. He got kicked out of Cannes Festival after 2011 from Melancholia because he said he was a Nazi. And they kicked him out of that festival until just recently when he uh, premiered his movie, The House of Jack Bill. I'm like, all right, this is cool. Like, I can get into this. So back in 2010, I watched Antichrist. And I, didn't, I really didn't like it, but I didn't hate it either. I just kind of was indifferent to the film because I felt like a lot of the camera angles that were used was very amateurish. Um, like the, uh, the doc had said, I love Willem Dafoe. I mean, I love a lot of the movies that he's in. Uh, this one included in a lot of ways because I think he's a decent actor. Charlotte Gainsbourg didn't really give me enough to kind of have an opinion either way of whether or not I liked her in this movie. I just didn't really have an opinion. I just didn't really follow her character. I just didn't really care uh, too much. But it's the fact that it's broken up into different parts and you have different chapters. You have a prologue, you have an epilogue. But the whole beginning sequence, which we had talked about, with, with the sex between Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg, shot in black and white, slow motion with this liturgic operatic uh, music playing, it felt like a really bad uh, college student art film. It was trying to be really just artistic and, and just going out there with these different camera angles and choices. And I kind of felt like, ah, you know, this is going back to when I first watched it. I'm like, I just didn't really care for the intro because I felt like it was just, like we had talked about in the show, artistic douchebaggery. We have brought it up many times in the show, and that's what I felt about this intro. I mean, you get the pretty much pornographic sequences of them having sex, their son falling to his death, and it all just felt really just kind of, let's move on. This is going on too long. But, you know, it's Lars von Trier trying to be out there. Yeah, so, I mean, again, I, I, I can't, I don't, want to ever go against somebody, you know, putting together their vision and whatnot. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, obviously, this is one of those films where the, you know, like, as it seems like I tend to, to pick, I don't know why sometimes, <laughs> but really all, I, really all I wanted, I wanted something gory this week. That's right. That is what I ended up looking up. I looked up, like, for gory horror films. It gets um, there. This had come up. This came up in the list, uh, but I think I wanted something more, a, a little more slapsticky-ish, or, or at least something a little mm. more fun. Um, but no, this instead delved into into that slice of horror where it's not so much of a villain or so much uh, of anything other than humanity's own darkness and you know a lot of this film has to do with depression and dark things and dark thoughts and other confusing shit which I don't always get um I get Defoe's character but you know the the wife's character seems very you know I mean I know she's a woman um erratic you know, trying not to be offensive. But, I mean, I guess maybe that is the whole purpose of it, considering where that character goes, you know, so. Well, and that's a good point that you bring up, too, is that Lars von Trier has been accused of many times of being a misogynist when it comes to his films and the way that he portrays women. And I think that's kind of on display here, I think, a lot of times in Antichrist. 
uh, a misogynistic, in a way, view of women, uh, especially when it comes to she, who, again, it's a lot like Mother, where the characters don't have names. It's he, it's she, and then the baby Nick. That's the only character that has a name is baby Nick. Um, so in that regard, it's, it's one of those things where the character names are irrelevant. We're talking about well, the doctor's name is Wayne. The doctor in the movie? Yeah, not Willem Dafoe's character, but the doctor that was treating her prior. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about the movie. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you're just talking yeah. about the two main characters. I know, I know, I know. I was just <laughs> yeah. interjecting for the sake well, of interjecting. Interjecting. Interjaculating. It is an interesting dynamic that they do have, though, um, that gets explored later. Because you really do feel that when you watch the trailer, it kind of portrays Willem Dafoe as almost like the Antichrist in the trailer. Like, he's playing Lucifer. And there's a lot of talk about how nature is Satan's church and all these different things. But when you watch the movie, you feel like he has the best of intentions when it comes to his wife. You feel like he's handling their child's debt better than she is. Um, uh, but that's uh, what I wanted to get a, a view from you is, do you feel like that he definitely had the best intentions in healing his wife and there was not the nefarious means of him treating her by taking her to this cabin in the woods called Eden? Uh, well, I mean, I didn't watch the trailer for this. I probably should have. Um, but, okay, so here was what my picture of this film was going to be. You know, guy and woman go off to cabin because woman is pregnant. And I was thinking more of like a Rosemary's Baby type deal in which the husband knows that she's pregnant with the upcoming Antichrist. And that was where all this evil shit was going to come from. Um, That being said, what we end up getting with the film obviously was nothing like that whatsoever. There was just a lot of fucking, um, (laughs) as far as Willem Dafoe's character goes though. No, I don't think he was handling it any better. I think he was showing very much the, uh, the God complex that we put on doctors, you know, quite often in this day and age. Um, I think his, idea of therapy for her was just as much therapy for himself. His treating her was a means of not dealing with it himself. You know, because like she said, he was cold. He was distant. He was never really a part of all of that anyway. So now, whether she was saying that just to lash out at him or because that's how he was, I feel like what we saw of his character, that that is who he is and that he was cold, and that he was distant, and rather than be able to to actually grieve himself and to actually be able to deal with the loss of this child, he instead is going to transfer all of that blame onto her because of the direction her depression took her. It was easier for him to treat her. I mean, the other way to look at it, too, is did he even really care? Because as much as you saw him at the funeral and whatnot, you never really get a sense that he was really all that broken up over the loss of the child. I thought he well, was. I mean, he, I, he was definitely crying. You know, I mean, he was definitely yeah, mourning. The the scene at the funeral where uh, they're walking and he breaks down, uh, you see him crying there. And uh, I feel, yes, he transferred all of that grief 
uh, into treating her, but I feel that's what he had to do to cope. Uh, he mm. very easily could slip into his doctor persona and say, oh, I don't know about the treatment that you're getting, but this is what I do, so I'm going to kind of slip into this role, and we're going to go away to Eden and grieve together, but I'm going to slip into my doctor, my professional therapist, uh, unemotional doctor role, which I do that for my profession, for my career. Uh, I'm able to play that part. It's a comfortable place for me to be where I maybe don't have to examine or deal with my own grief. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting thing that you bring up, too, is that the one line that she has when they're talking in the hospital and she's being treated because she had passed out during the funeral is that he's kind of being negative to the doctors because they're giving her a whole bunch of pills. And he's like, you know, these doctors, you know, they're not to be trusted. And she goes, well, you're not a doctor. And he goes, and I thank God that I'm not. I'm a therapist. You know, I deal psychologically with issues. And I kind of like that line. It's kind of that one thing where you kind of see that she's not as loving of a wife as you would want her to be. I feel like she doesn't respect him the way that he wants to be respected. So there is kind of that antagonistic view that you get, just based off that one line, of her having more value in doctors than him as a therapist. Yeah, but that's also a month into her being in the hospital. Her also being heavily medicated. And again, you know, when when you're in this kind of situation, you got to figure both parties are going to go through periods in which the blame is going to go back and forth. Um, You know, we have that that one portion of the discussion where she's telling him that, you know, she never told him that the kid gets out of the crib. You know, that the kid knows how to open the gate. You know, all of these things that, you know, could have I don't know. I don't know if it could have prevented it, but it could have at least maybe helped them put safeguards into place. You know, maybe as, you know, as the the whole woman and man thing goes on over the years, obviously there are certain things that they always say, you know, men have this more, you know, clinical, technical way of thinking, whereas, you know, women are obviously more emotional creatures. Um, you know, so if she was to have told him that, maybe he would have changed the game or put some other kind of, uh, of locking on there. Maybe he wouldn't have. Who knows? You know, there, there, there are plenty of things that I'm sure go through uh, a parent's head when a tragedy like this occurs. But, you know, again, her saying that to him at that point, I just don't know how much of that had to do with her being medicated at the time, plus the grieving process, or had she have felt this way all this time? Well, and there was that we point know where she did. did spill the pills down the toilet. You know, where she takes the whole medication that they're giving her and she just dumps it down the toilet and flushes it. Like, she no longer needs that medication, although you feel like she does need that medication. But in her own oh, mind... I thought she was doing that... You know, I thought she was doing that because of him. That he was making maybe, her do that. Good point. Because part of his treatment yeah. was going to be to get rid of that medication. And that's a good point. I didn't think of that. I thought she was doing that because she felt like she had heard enough from him and she was doing that just to say, you know what, fuck it. I don't need it. You're saying I don't need it? Fine, I don't need it. You know, let's, let's deal with this. Let's do the therapy side of things. If you don't think I need the medication, let's do your cure. You know, let's, let's do, you know, therapist, patient, and let's see where we can go uh, as far as, you know, going to um, Eden, the cabin, which is where things do obviously take different turns. 
um, you know, in, in the therapy. But I feel like once you reach Eden, I feel like they're both on their different paths at a certain point. I feel like they're both there. Like, he takes her there to kind of, you know, get her through the mourning process and kind of, you know, give her what she needs to get back to where she was. But I feel like they're both on their own different paths, whether they know it or not, uh, once they get to the cabin. I wanted to get your guys' opinion on that. Go ahead, Gould. You go. Oh, no. I I mean, for me, I don't know. This is, again, one of those those weird things because you get the, you know, the the whole notion that he's going to be her therapist. Um, right. You know, which obviously gets brought up that, you know, you're not supposed to treat your own family members. And, I mean, obviously, yeah, you're definitely not supposed to be treating your own wife. I mean, there's always going to be a bias there. You know, there's going to be things mm-hmm. that she's not going to say because it's him. You know, and even if she does, you got to always worry that, you know, even he can sit there and say all he wants that, oh, well, I'm going to look at this professionally and I'm going to do this and that, you know, there's going to be things that you're going to hear that, you know, obviously as a husband, you're not going to want to hear. And if you're capable of sitting there and hearing that dispassionately as her husband, then there is a huge problem in this relationship. I was kind of confused as to why they went to Eden to begin with, um, as far as, like, the treatment goes. I mean, I know ultimately it came down to her having, like, he made his little triangle chart and was trying to figure yeah, out, yeah. like, what her her fear was and all this and that. Like, I don't, I guess because she was having anxiety attacks or whatever it was, this is where the fucking movie was just like, they, they needed to clean this up a little bit <laughs> and maybe have given us more of a, a clear-cut reason why they were going to the cabin. They weren't going there for her to have peace of mind. They were going there for her to confront this this whole fear thing, but they were never really clear on defining what that was to begin with. And I thought that was the point, honestly, was that they weren't going to be clear cut on why they were going out there because they do have that whole thing about her thesis on the gyno side and how she was supposed to go out to Eden with Nick to write this thesis so she could be away from, you know, all the hustle and bustle of the city and write this thesis. And then you find out that she never went. Like she never went to Eden. Oh, no, she never finished it. She went to Eden. She didn't finish the thesis. Okay. She went there. She, she actually there, she never went. Which is a... Okay. Which is, again, a weird thing. Because, no, she says she went there, she got there, and for whatever reason, she didn't finish it. But, you know, she was there, and, like, where I thought the film was going to go, because during this whole entire discussion point, was when she was busy talking about how he didn't take an interest in it. He wasn't, you know, involved. Right. She thought he should have come up there and didn't. I thought this was going to go right. in the whole direction of, you know, she went there, and the reason why she didn't write the thesis was because she ended up having, you know, realizing that her son was so important that that was why, you know, she just found, like, that was a better thing to do than to have spent the time up there with the kid being up there and her just writing the entire time, finding her family to be more important than her work. Um, So to find out she didn't because she heard noises, like, I don't know, I found it weird that, like, you know, the whole idea was they were going to go to this place where she was last up there with the kid, having good experiences with the kid, and hey, you know, why not go there for your grief feeling? Because, yeah, nothing makes you feel fucking better when you're grieving than to see all the places that you had a good time with your kid. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, like, you know, the, the whole acorn thing, 
you know, where the acorns are falling on the roof and, and uh, you know, one of the post character can't figure out why. And she's like, oh, it's just damn acorns. Like, she's used to it, right? you know, at that point. Like, it's rain. Um, but the reason I bring up why I feel like they're on different paths while they're at Eden is because Willem Dafoe seems to be having these, you know, uh, not psychotic, but just kind of weird psychedelic experiences while out about in the woods uh, when he sees the doe with the baby hanging out of the womb uh, and the fox that's basically disemboweling itself and eating itself and saying chaos reigns. What does like, the like fox say? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> it <said damn. laughs> yeah. But it was that whole visual of the fox sitting in this bush, eating its innards, eating its intestines, and all bush. of a sudden turning to Willem Dafoe and saying chaos reigns. So you kind of feel like, is he psychologically breaking down as well? Like, is it having the opposite effect where Eden is actually getting to him psychologically and he's on his own little adventure when he should be there for his life? Well, well should get, that, oh, go ahead, Doc. Let me, yeah, that's, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, he is going to be her therapist. He's going to put that face on. But still, if he's doing that uh, and putting on that therapy face to, to work with his wife, uh, we don't know of what methods he's done as far as self-care. Uh, based on his opinions about the therapy that he had received before they went out there, I'm assuming his view of others in that field, doctor's therapist is not that strong, uh, so he's right. the one that's going to do it. But when they get out there and he gets out on these things on his own, like that stuff is very easily could be just a manifestation of what's going on in his head. I, I'm not a parent. I've, I've, I've never right. lost a child. I'm not going to be a parent. I, those are shoes that I don't walk in and can't walk in. But I feel that you can't, I feel like if you were to lose a child in the fashion in which they lost their child, that you can't just put on your doctor face and be a therapist. Like, all going on inside of him, I feel, is maybe manifestate, mani- manifesting in, like, the fox um, and the deer and whatnot. So I feel that that was his guilt, his grief, uh, his inner turmoil uh, represented in in the visuals uh, that he was experiencing. And, and, see, and here's I a felt, question. because go the ahead. name yeah, of the ahead. movie was Antichrist, yeah. that this was all going to come down to like some kind of demonic possession, or the devil yeah, that was, was involved point. with this somewhere. Yeah. Like you know, so like these were like little hints and things that like something was afoot. And a foul mm-hmm. here. Like, yes. maybe everything that ends up happening to them, including their son dying, like, maybe something started here. Maybe she got possessed here. And, like, he's starting to see that. And I don't know. Like I said, man, like, this is a fucking script that needed to be tightened and maybe, like, like stop trying to be <laughs> such a fucking art house film and make a movie yes. instead. But that's well, what that Lord was- that's exactly what he does. He's an art house director, first and foremost. And that's why I said it's not even that this movie is a horror film. I don't really think it is. You know, it's an art house it's film. It's a ex- drama. It's an experimental horror film is what it's listed as. And, and as it shuts, because there is horrific elements that happen uh, in the third act. But as a whole, I really never considered this movie to be a horror film. I always considered it to be just an art house film with dramatic elements and horrific elements as well. But that's what you had just said is what I wanted to bring up about 
the woman, Charlotte Gainsbourg, is she at one point possessed when she's at Eden by some kind of power? Because we do, think, we do see things in the woods as the movie progresses, um, whether it's the fox or whether it's uh, the deer or the, the bodies that we see in the woods at a certain point. Is she becoming possessed by whatever power is in the woods? Because at a certain point, she kind of seems normal again. You know, kind of you know, back to where she was before this whole thing happened. You know, kind of coping, uh, normal, not just upset all the time, and just kind of back to her old self. Is that's when she starts to have sex with Willem Dafoe again? But not just sex. Well, no, but, they've been you know, they've been of, fucking the whole time. They've been fucking nonstop. But, Basically, every time this chick has a fucking issue that she's dealing with, anytime she's in yes. any kind of pain emotionally, she's like, hey, yeah. I'm going to take off my fucking panties and I'm going to pull out your big Willem the fucking cock and I'm going to stick it up <laughs> in me, man. Because that's all she fucking does. All She's like a total fucking nymph, man. And listen, I'm not complaining about that. I, I rather would enjoy it to a degree, I guess, but... You know, when you're busy fuck, fucking, fucking, and you're also sob, sob, sobbity, sobbing at the same time, it makes you a little bit fucking uncomfortable. Well, and that's what the scene I was going to talk about was when they have sex the one night, and he asks her to hit her. Hit me until it hurts. And he does it, but at the same time, she yeah, but that's near the end, it. man. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Is we're not going scene by scene. I'm trying to, you know, go to different kind of elements. But the, the whole, you know, yeah, smacking until it hurts. Um, you know, that was that one thing, you know, where it's, she's becoming on a different level, where it's not just about sex anymore. Now she needs to include pain with it, too. Like, she wants, he loves her, but at the same time, she wants what she wants. So it's her kind of breaking down, you know, uh, mentally, I guess, you know, with what she wants sexually. Well, you're going to have to comply with it. You ask if you think that she's demonically possessed or anything in some way. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think that at any point in this film is is it – I don't think it's specifically supernatural. I think it's more along the lines of – I mean, I guess obviously it's supernatural because what I'm going to say next. I, I think it's kind of like a, like a witchcraft type of deal. I think it's similar right. to like the whole fucking, you know, the witch or the vavitch or whatever the fuck you want to call that movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, the witch. Yeah. You know, where everything is obviously building up to these things, but again, it's never really fundamentally spelled out. Um, so whether it's Satan, whether it's the Antichrist, whether, you know, whether it's just simply her, whether she's just completely mad, you know, like the portion in which she gets normal for that little bit, you know, I almost felt like that was her getting to a point within, because again, with the way everything's divided into its chapters, you know, you're in different stages of the grieving process. And I feel like maybe this was like kind of like a an effort to make him think she was okay. Hey, look, I'm okay. Look what I'm doing. I'm normal again. I'm normal. Mm-hmm. You know, almost to where it was like, hey, let's get out of here. You know, because she just didn't want to be there anymore dealing with it. She would just rather have gone home at that point and just, you know, let things go wherever they were going to go. Well, and that's where I thought the possession angle kind of took place is that all of a sudden she's normal again, you know, or she's like, look at me, you know, I'm not mourning anymore, and I'm back to where I was. I'm the woman that you love. But, you know, like we had said later on in the movie, when they have sex again, it turns into more of a sadomasochistic uh, sex romp, 
where she's asking her to, you know, asking him to hit her and just kind of getting off on that. And he's like, I love you though, you know, and that's what I feel about you. And she has to go run off into the woods and angrily masturbate. And so he comes along and says, all right, well, we'll just fuck right here, right in the fucking evil deadwoods. Well, there's a bunch of fucking hands popping out of the fucking old <laughs> The evil deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, it's one of those moments where I really wish the actress was, like, sexier. Because she really, oh, you know, yeah, she was not whatever. I mean, obviously, there's, there's <laughs> body types for every single person. And there are people out there, I'm sure, that look at her and they're like, oh, she is, she is just sexy. You know, I I thought she fucking was just kind of nasty. Um, just yeah, the body type is just not not for me. Um, but yeah, it would have been a hot scene otherwise because yeah, she's fucking finger banging away, and I mean they're like again, this is where like the graphical portion of this comes into play because oh, yeah. you know you, you know, one of the things the ghoul girl always complains about is that there's just never enough dick. Like in films, you don't ever see dick. You know, you see a lot of vagina or at least pubic. You see breasts left and Happy right. With this one. You know, but <laughs> this one, you know, you got cock all over the place. And you're not even just seeing, like, you know, pubic. You're seeing, like, this chick is really going to fucking town. I mean, this is like, you know, like I said, it's basically like a fucking, you know, maybe even a level ahead of Skinamax because you kind of see in penetration, which you didn't see in those, oh, those no, yeah. fucking Skinamax films. <laughs> you know, it's definitely hardcore. Yeah, that's um, very true. One of the one of the things with that, like you know, there's forever been a you know kind of sort of debate about uh, nudity represented in film, uh, with you know boobs being the primary source of nudity that's seen. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about porn, of course, but regular you know Hollywood movies, indie movies, and whatnot. Boobs, but uh, you know, occasional. Uh, vagina, occasional penis, even rarer. Um, one of the things that's interesting about that, um, you know, reading more about, you know, males and females and, and female behaviors and female behaviors and turn-ons and whatnot, is that, like, sure, women might be like, oh, where's the balance because there's, there's so much female nudity in films, but uh, on the same token, uh, women are not visu- like, a, like, a visual, like visually stimulated the same way that men are. Mm. Oh yeah, there's always going to be that debate, you know, as far as so you know, uh, it's more. I feel like when that what was the name of that movie uh, a few years ago that that was all the rage with the ladies uh, about the male strippers. What was Magic that called? Mike? Magic yeah, Mike. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Magic Mike. Uh, I knew that the, the king would know the title of that immediately, but um. It. <laughs> uh, so uh, I never saw that movie, but like when that movie was in the theaters, like women went crazy, and oh, yeah. it was more. It was more, I think, for like the suggestion of what it was. In short, like shirtless, oiled up men dancing around. But I don't necessarily, and and, and I'm obviously not speaking for the entire female uh, gender, of course. But I feel like it wouldn't have made a difference to the people that went crazy for that movie if there was penis or not, you know? So it's like a different visual kind of thing between females and males. I'm not saying it because I want to be fucking stimulated by seeing a dick on screen. <laughs> it's the last thing I really want to fucking see more of. I've got my own. I see it on a regular fucking basis. <laughs> but at the same time, too, you definitely see more of a naked female's body in the entire oeuvre of film 
than you ever right. see a complete male's body. And you really yeah, very absolutely. rarely do see male genitalia as far as that goes. Like, yeah, you might see a man's butt, but very rarely do you see his dick and balls. Meanwhile, though, and if you, you know, do, it's oftentimes, films, it's, oftentimes it's mostly, if you do see it, it's mostly played for comedy, too. But yeah. You know, so, like, yeah, yeah I'll, uh, Jason Seagal, who loves to show his fucking dick. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, like, you know, whereas female breasts are obviously shown regularly within movies. And, again, like I said, you know, obviously you're not going to see many films out there besides a porn that's going to show you a fucking lady's labia. But, you know, seeing a woman's pubic region is not something uncommon in film either. But again, you know, the male dick, no, that's fucking taboo. I mean, shit, man. If What's good for the goose is good for the gander, man. If Whether or not, I'm not even talking about putting it out there for any kind of stimulation or what we find sexually attractive versus what females find sexually attractive. The fact of the matter is, though, is that these are all human body parts and we keep showing films in which we're only showing specific human body parts. Right, and and with this, you know, with Antichrist, it was definitely shown in more of an artistic uh, sense, you know, showing the male phallic symbol, you know, showing the actual penis, showing the balls, you know, it was all done, you know, in an artistic sense to go in line with the plot of the movie. Yeah, as artistic as a fucking dude blowing a load of blood can possibly be, dude. Well, we're going to get there because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get there (laughs) Uh, just yet. I strongly suggest seeing a doctor about that. Well, yeah, because the, the one thing that we find out um, you know, after they were, after uh, one of the foes character reviews the autopsy of their their infant son Nick after a while is that there was uh, you know kind of a genetic a genetic uh, mutation to the feet uh, that he found out in the autopsy, and then you see these pictures of the son wearing the shoes on different feet, you know, wearing the right shoe on the left and wearing the left shoe on the right. And then you kind of find out that, well, they had said it was a genetic mutation until he looked at the pictures. And well, no, saw they said that, that there was, th- there was an issue with the feet that they felt was a condition prior right. to his death. And what you find, well, again, genetic means that it was in the genes, as in it was there, you know, naturally, well, whatever, naturally, but, it wasn't. but due to a genetic manifestation, as opposed to what happened, which is her fucking putting the shoes on, wrong on purpose because she's a fucking sick bitch that scene honestly like we're going to get to some of the gore sequences in a minute but that scene killed me when the baby is crying for its dad and she's putting these shoes on the wrong feet purposely like i it just pained me because poor kid having to deal with this evil woman doing this for whatever means you never find out why she did it she just did it you know there was never an explanation You know, obviously, you know, in the film, what we find is that, you know, she comes to the conclusion that women are all just inherently evil. Evil, um, yeah. yeah. You know, just <laughs> evil, evil, evil. Bad, bad, bad creatures in general. Um, you know, I personally, you know, I think she was probably just a damaged person that was good yeah. at hiding most of that damage, you know, for the most part. Right, and it's it's it, it killed me that scene, you know, seeing the kid crying, calling out for his dad, and she's just doing what she wants to do, you know. When he confronts her with it, um, it, it gets to that scene where, yeah, my dick hurt because he put up with a lot. Not only getting a block of wood right through the dick, but he passes out, and passes out so well that she could drill 
into his leg without him waking up. Man, so totally unfeasible. <laughs> There's no way. I was like, There's what no are you way. talking you about? You just nope. don't have a fucking automatic reaction to that kind of shit. That's bullshit, yes. man. You know, this, yeah, this I don't know. is where the movie kind of fast forwards in a weird sort of way because it just seems it to go from fucking like zero to 60 all of a sudden. She's yelling about oh, yeah. him fucking leaving. He's like, no, I'm not going to leave. And then she goes into the whole like, we're going to fuck, we're going to fuck. And then she gets mad at him. And yeah, she brutalizes his dick, man. But, like, he passes out because of it, but I don't know if I would pass out if somebody hit me hard in the dick. I feel, I feel like I'd be screaming in pain, but I don't know if I would just pass out and long enough to send to drill a hole in my leg. She hit him with a fucking big block of wood right to the fucking nuts, man. Um, you know, it's definitely possible. It's enough of a shock to knock you out. But again, I just don't see where if you're just unconscious, like you're not under any kind of anesthetic, you're not under any kind of thing like that. I would think the way your fucking nervous system works, that the second she starts drilling a fucking hole completely through your leg, your ass is waking up screaming at the top of your fucking lungs. I had no idea how he didn't wake up. Like she drilled it all the way through, and then she shoved that rebar through it and put the weight on it. I just didn't understand how he didn't wake up once. And go, what Take the a fuck? load off, I'm, Danny. I'm it's just, I couldn't believe it that, you know, he didn't wake up once. But it goes to his character, I guess, that he passed out for that long with that thing sticking through his leg. And then they have to deal with it and try to find a way to escape while she's on a psychotic break screaming for him in the woods. But, you know, give a lot of credit to this character for surviving with that much pain. I don't know if I'd be able to handle that. <sighs> Especially after being jerked uh, I mean, off I, until I like, fucking ejaculated blood. You wouldn't be able to I handle mean, that. She, I wouldn't be I able mean, to handle that. Know, the ghoul wouldn't be able to handle that. I mean, considering that, yeah, you know, he's unconscious, she jacks him off, and he squirts blood. <laughs> blood? Yeah. Which, you know, is then all over her shirt, you know, which is like a browser scene, but with blood. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yes, with the hand drill through the leg. Like, I gotta yeah. give this guy credit in which, you know, how are you not completely just utterly Broken? furious? Like, how are you <laughs> yeah. not mad? You know, like, if I woke yeah. up, okay, let's just say for imagination's purpose that, yeah, I was unconscious during this whole fucking hand crank drilling through my leg, and I wake up, there's this big fucking stone and a bar and a bolt in my leg, you know, I think, you know, my reaction initially would be, of course, one of horror, shock, and yelling and screaming, and then utter anger and furiousness, and like, bitch, the second you come within fucking fingertips reach, I am going to bash your fucking face in. Yes. And like, but I feel like that moment was his survival mode, where he's like, I gotta get away from this bitch. I'm in no mood, to, I'm in no condition to fight back at the moment. You know, I got this thing through my leg. My dick's been smashed. I got to go. I got to hide because she's on the hunt. She's, she's healthy. She's going to find me. And when, she, when he does, like, he gets into this hole where there's a bird that's going to give away his location. So he has to kill this bird. It went on way too long. Him trying to kill this fucking bird. It's not just a fucking bird. It's a bird. He crawls into a hole, 
And he starts fucking digging into the hole, and he pulls up a bird yep. out of the ground, which the bird is suddenly alive. What the <laughs> yep. fuck was it doing? Did it was it cold? Did the bird like go into the fucking foxhole and was like, oh hey, I'm gonna take a nap here. Hold on, let me pull a little bit of a dirt <laughs> blanket over me, and I'm just gonna lay here. Caca caca. What does the fox say? Yeah, and it was just. I mean, it was. I know that it's supposed to be a part of the three beggars which is the last chapter before the epilogue with the deer, the fox, and, and the bird. But, man, that scene went on way too long, where he's just trying to bash happy, his happy, bird. Happy, happy, happy. <laughs> the bird's just, like, calling the entire time. And he's like, why won't you die, damn it? She's going to find out where I am. And she's going to awkwardly try to bury me alive. And why not throw the fucking bird out of the hole? Why are you sitting yep. there trying to bash its fucking head in with a fucking rock? <laughs> which obviously you're not doing successfully. Fucking you know, grab the damn thing and try to shove it back down the other way. No. It, and if you're going to hide one, in a hole, don't you think you fucking pull your legs in so that your feet aren't sticking <laughs> out of the hole? It's just the whole thing was like we had talked about on previous shows, artistic douchebaggery. And that's what I felt the scene was. When she finds him, and then rather than try to save him at first, she buries him alive for some reason. And she's like, I'm just going to bury him. That's, that's, that's the solution. I'm going to bury him alive. But uh, that's it. But no, i got to save him again. I'm going to bring him back to the cabin. Well, that was a weird thing. I don't think her intention yeah. was for him to get, like, buried in there. I think she was trying to, like, hit him with the shovel and trying to kind of, like, I kill him? Strike things in general, and then that's when the mm-hmm. rock fell down, you know? And then yep. it was like, yep. fuck, I can't move this rock. And then she goes up to the top, and then, yeah, when she starts, like, it seriously made me start laughing out loud when I saw her first <laughs> yeah. like, dig. Because I'm, like, looking at the height of the hill versus where the hole is located, thinking about how much dirt she's going to have to remove to get down to where that hole is, and yet you yeah. film. It's like she digs a couple of inches and suddenly there's this fucking hole opened up and there's a little, little <laughs> face. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, like she did he grow really big or did like the, the fucking, like, I don't know. It was fucking weird, man. It made no sense. <laughs> like, it's like that was the point where I'm like, all right, this movie's off the rails. Oh, not yet, though, because we have another scene to get through. I was like, it's not quite uh, there yet because we have to go back to the cabin. Where she's just like, oh, my God, hold me. I'm going to grab a pair of scissors and cut my clitoris off. The fuck, movie? <laughs> what are you well, doing? This is, again, where she goes into, like, that weird, like, um, norm, like somewhat sane or normal again. She's telling him, because yeah. she, she goes to look for the bolt. It's like she doesn't realize, like, you know, like, why she did any of this. And she, I mean, she wasn't looking for the bolt. She was looking for the wrench. She can't find the wrench. She obviously can't remember that she fucking threw it under the house for whatever reason. She can find it um, easy, though. <laughs> and then, yeah, like, you know, then, then, then the fucking click cutting. That was one of those where, like, when Ooh. she got the scissor, I was like, all right, she's just going to stab him or something. But then she goes to that, and then they cut to the close-up, and then it was like, oh, yeah. the cool girl was, like, walking out of the room, 
and like froze because it was one of those sequences in which you had to sit there and look. And then the fucking words that came out of her mouth afterwards were like, holy fuck, I can never unsee that. Holy shit. Because, yeah, they, they, they talk about this kind of stuff. Like, I guess it goes on in Africa and shit where they like they do these uh, yeah, yeah. female circumcisions and shit like that. Yeah, it's a horrible but abuse. It's a horrible abuse. It is. It really is. But, but to have seen it so graphically... And so, like, like yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no, it, it was like, it oh, right God. It wouldn't actually, you know, put it on a cracker and fucking eat it with a little bit of salt or something. No, God, no. no. <laughs> you know, but it's, you know, but yeah, we, we talked about it in the Green Inferno about the whole female, you know, circumcisions. But yeah, and here you get to see it right up close and personal with her cutting off her clitoris. And then, you know, her writhing in pain and getting up and going, oh, my God, you know, this is, you know I'm bleeding. Lick and then the you beam. see Juan Defoe grab the wrench and not do lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. He goes right with that wrench. I'm like, you're just fucking making it tighter. Go left. Like, you know? I was like, go left with it. Oh, they're for it. You know what? Maybe the screws go on the other way. They're already, yeah. They're already, right. Well, it's the reverse fucking Seattle. That that's the case. Place in Seattle, Washington. So I was like, they can't be that foreign. But um, yeah, the fact that he did that, but then he takes off the bolt, you know, I feel like this is the ghoul's moment where he's like, all right, bitch, you're going to get it now. I'm just going to strangle well, your thing ass. Too, I don't think he gets the bolt off because I guess he was turning it the wrong way. Because if you look, when he pulls yeah, the fucking thing right. out of his leg, the, yeah. When he pulls the thing out of his leg, the bolt is still on it. Like, it I is, noticed yeah. that. So I think he just pulled it completely mm-hmm. through at that point. I think he was just like, fuck it, it ain't working. Well, that's what I said. That's, I don't know if that was on purpose or if that was just, like, you know, a mistake. But, yeah, he, he starts putting the wrench to the left. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, you got to pull it this way, you know. But I think at that point he was just kind of just trying to survive. At the same time, he had, he's done with his wife at this point. Like, you know, you're an evil woman. We've talked about it before with Gino's side. And you obviously, you find out that she could have saved her son when they were having sex. She watched her son fall out that window and let it happen. So, uh, evil woman, she let it occur. I don't think so. I think that's in her own mind how she sees okay, the sure. situation. Again, I feel I like, it as you know, don't, don't. The fundamental thing I think we're finding with this film, like like we said, the whole idea of her original thesis was to talk about genocide and the the bastardization of women over the centuries and the kind of punishment that was done to women for, in a lot of cases, just because they were women and that because men can would do those things. I guess you can say they can do those things because back then they could. Um, but, you know, during this process, obviously she had begun this mental breakdown and that's when her thesis started changing and you see through her writing that things are getting more erratic and she, like I said earlier, she, you know, ultimately comes down to this, this idea that just women are all evil. And I think what we're seeing in that scene where she's having sex and she watches the kid walk by um, and, you know, fall out the window, I think that's just her in her mind recreating the events as if it was her fault, that she could have stopped it, she could have done something. It's kind of like that ultimate turn in which it's like, this is completely right. all my fault now. 
You know, everything was on me. I am completely evil. I don't think she saw that. We saw the scene. You know what I mean? They were just too busy fucking. They were drunk. You know, it was a a horrific accident is what it was. But, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah. She put a trail of M&Ms there for the kid to go out the fucking window. (laughs) No, but it's it's an interesting thing that you bring that up. Because I, I, I look at that as literal. But I think there is another way that you can look at it, like you had said, where... It's in her own mind. I took it as literal because she is taking on this oeuvre of an evil woman. So, obviously, she let her kid fall out that window while they were having sex. But, like you had said, there's obviously maybe she didn't. Maybe it's just in her own mind. What I want to know is, was he right for killing her, for strangling her to death? Like, yeah. Do you think that she could have been saved? Okay. No, at that point, you know what, man? Uh-uh. You're in the middle of fucking mm. nowhere. There is nothing, you know, uh, whatever, man. You know, all bets are off. The bitch crushed your junk. You're ejaculating blood. She put a fucking bolt through. That would be like saying, hey, you know what? Let's let fucking James Caan not kill fucking Kathy Bates at the end of Misery, you know? Like, fuck (laughs) that, bitch. You're going down. Maybe we should let her go. Yeah. Nuh-uh. There, there ain't no fucking arresting. I mean, there ain't no fucking trial. No, you know what? My wife went fucking missing. That's what happened, assholes. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Well, she went know. to the woods. I saw a bloody fox out there. I have no fucking idea. Yeah, there was a big fire. You know, we, we, we made a fucking fire at one point, but, you know, that's all. It was normal. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Doc, what do you think? Do you think that he was right in killing his wife and then putting her on that funeral fire to walk away from Eden forever? Uh, yes. I mean, I, look, I don't know. based on, based on their, uh, experiences at the cabin, uh, <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't see, uh, as a man, like, how you're coming back from that. Uh, I don't know if I would I kill you. I don't know. I, mean, well, I don't know maybe what the divorce laws are. Yeah. The, 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 I don't know what the divorce laws better. are in Washington, man, but you know what, bitch? After you put me through all that, you're not getting half of that shit. Fuck you. I, I mean, I don't know if I would have killed her. I don't know. I mean, at the, when he was doing it, when he was strangling her, and you see the, um, you know, the, the veins in her neck and the heartbeat and everything like that, I don't know if I would have killed her. You know, I don't think I think he's absolutely justified in doing what he did. You know, then creating that funeral pyre. And lighting your body on fire. I mean, it, you know, he's absolutely justified. I just don't know in that situation if I would. Like, I still would think that there's some hope for her. You know, I just need to Fuck get that. her away from this evil place. And that's just the I way I think about it. I would have stopped within just like an inch of her fucking dying, man. And like knowing that mm-hmm. she's going to die and knowing that she's going to suffer and die slowly, it's at that time you turn her around and you fuck her in her ass. You know, this way, you know, she's really dealing with some issues as she's dying. Well, because you do wonder if she's going to bleed out from her cutting her clitoris off. Like, you know, pretty sure she's probably going to bleed out from that. You don't have to worry about strangling her to death. I'm pretty sure that's a death bell right there. But, you know, he didn't waste any time. Uh, you know, then you close out with the epilogue. Once again in black and white with him walking off and hobbling off into the woods, eating berries off the trees. Then reaching a certain point where he's just attacked by thousands of women with blurred faces. Like, what the fuck is this? Like, yeah. I didn't feel like he was being in... attacked. I thought they were going there to kill him. That's what I took it as. Because they were converging on him real fast. 
Well, no, see, I felt like those were, you know, again, the whole idea of them being faceless, I took that as being kind of, because, again, like, little things that they started hinting at here was the whole idea of, like, the, you know, witchcraft and stuff like that. Right, Um, right. I took them as the faceless women of, you know, various atrocities committed, but at the same time, too, were those atrocities committed... You know, was it something that might have been justified and we just didn't realize it? You know, was she right in which women were inherently evil? Or, you know, or what? Like, I felt like these were just, like, spirits and faceless spirits that were just going to be wandering past. I mean, she goes on about, you know, there can't be a... There needs to be a sacrifice once the three beggars show up. Well, the sacrifice occurs. It was her. He kills her. Right. So, she... It's just not him. That's the difference. It just it seemed the way that they were converging. You know, plus the way that he kind of reacted, it didn't seem like he was afraid. You know, he wasn't terrified, like, oh shit. Like, he just kind of accepted it when they all kind of converged on him. So I don't know if they killed him. I don't know if it was just spirits in the woods, but it was kind of an interesting way to close it out where all these spacious women were kind of converging on him in this one spot. You know, whether Mm -hmm. there was uh, mischievous means or not, I just, you know, like I said, I, I don't believe that women are inherently evil. You know, I, I didn't take that away from this movie. I think that was just Lars von Trier kind of putting it in there. Um, but it's an interesting thought, but I, just, I don't agree with the message that they were trying maybe, to relate. Maybe it's like the end of Titanic, you know what I mean, where, you know, she, she dies, but you don't really know. You know, maybe he's dying, and that's, you know, that's what he's seeing here. It's just like this, this faceless mass of women that have all experienced the cock. You know, the faux balls. Well, and I wonder, too, like you had said, maybe that's, you know, uh, you know witchcraft. Maybe it's, it's witches that are converging on them. You know, maybe that was an area where there was a lot of witchcraft. Like you said, at the end of The Witch, it ends in a similar way with a group of women that end up being witches. So, I don't know. I, just, I definitely think that it was an artistic, art house way to end this movie, which is the way that it carried on throughout the entire thing. And I don't think that this, Lars von Trier put a lot of meaning into the ending. This should have been the Green Goblin origin story. That's what this should have been. <laughs> yeah, this is, a this is what really happened to, to, this this is what really happened to Harry's mother, you know? <laughs> yeah. You want to know what happened to your mother, Harry? I, she cut her foot off and I killed her. <laughs> me. What? <laughs> yeah. But what uh, you know, Doc? As we close out, Doc, what do you think about that? The whole women converging on this, you know, one person. At, truly, at at that point, and uh, you know, I you know, my summer schedule sometimes time wise is a little crazier than my school year schedule. I didn't get around to watching this till late last night, and you know, by the time we got around to that, I truly was just like, "What the fuck is going on here?" Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, that really was just like, uh, like, when it was all said and done, I was just like, really, like, what the actual fuck? Um, that was really the thought that I had during that scene. I didn't really delve any deeper uh, than that when it came to that sequence. It was, yeah. I mean, it was such a weird way to end it. You know, plus, like, they go back to the opening liturgic kind of operatic music. They shoot it again in black and white. It's, you know, it's like, well, we started with a really shitty art house movie sequence at the beginning, so we're going to end with it too. All right. Thank you. Where's the credits? I'm good with this movie. So, I mean, that's, you know, like I said, I don't like this movie. I don't hate it. It just, 
it exists. Um, you know, it has shocking elements that are good in the third act, but as a whole, I don't really consider this a horror movie. It's an art house film, and that's the way it is. But still, I'm glad we picked it because I like having these discussions, cool, where we kind of do a deep dive into these type of films. You know what's funny, man, is that they actually had a fucking video game in the works that was going to be like a follow-up to this film. I read about that. <laughs> you know, it got, got canceled, thankfully, but, like, I don't know. It's a fucking bizarre one. Like, how, how do you even, like, put this, like, into any kind of, like, game form, you know? Like, like what the hell? Who knows, man? Yeah, it's especially a Lars von Trier movie. I don't see it being a video game. But, Doc... Um, Next week is your pick. Do you have something for us, or are you going to tice us with uh, something going to week? No, no, no. I, I, have something, I have something for us, for certain. Uh, we are Go going to back to the late... We're go- no, we're not. We're not going back to Canada. <laughs> uh, I actually am realizing... <laughs> Marty! Um, <laughs> actually, what, am I kidding? Now... Become assholes or something? <laughs> We're going back to the late nineties, nineteen ninety nine, and okay. uh, while I'm realizing, oh, I'm realizing in this very, we are going to party yeah. like it's nineteen ninety nine, and make sure that our bellies are full. I'm realizing in this moment that one of my picks, uh, quite some time ago, uh, also shared the same title. But let there be no confusion. Uh, we are going to 1999, where we're going to hang out with Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle in 1999's *Ravenous*. Ooh, that's a good one. I'm uh, impressed with that one. Okay. Good period piece movie. Oh yeah, two actors that I have weird feelings on. Yeah, that's got Guy, Guy Pierce. Pierce in it. Robert Carlyle, um, David, David Arquette, Arquette, Jeremy Davies, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, pederast, pederast, Jeffrey Jones. He's in there. Some other yeah. familiar, some other familiar faces. Uh, but yeah, uh, Ravenous well, from 1999. What's Pierce that? is one of those. No, I was gonna say Pierce is one of those actors who I always feel like his best work is always in these like indie films. And anytime you try to see, oh, yeah. like anytime they try to stick him in like a bigger budget film, all like Iron Man three and whatnot, like he just it doesn't ever work. Right? Like he, he's one of those guys you know, that you see never. him in an independent film and you're like, oh, he'll be great when they put him in something good, you know, or something big, and then he doesn't do well in it. And on the other hand, yeah, Robert I mean, Car- Carlyle is one of those guys who I keep wanting to see do something big, you know. Like I see Willem Dafoe, and I think like, oh wow, he'd be a great Joker. Carlyle's another right. guy who I can see playing like that. Yeah. Guy a villain in something, you know, of that oeuvre. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a, a good one. Well, yeah, both of those two guys are actually in, in some of, different, not the same movie, but they're in some of the, like, the most, like, successful indies of all time with uh, uh, Guy Pierce in Memento and um, mm-hmm. Robert Carlyle in, uh, I can't think of the title of it right now, but the one with the, uh, with the guys that want to become strippers, like the working class guys. I the can't think of the title of it. The Full Monty, oh, yeah. Oh, Full Monty. Uh, Carlisle's The Full Monty. Yeah. So, yeah, but anyway. Also, uh, uh, 28 uh, weeks later. So, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, so, thank you. But anyway, that is, my, for, that is my pick for next week. All right. So, thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. We're going to go back to 1999. And I like the fact that it's also a movie that takes place during the winter months. And since it's hot as fuck right now, got to go do a cold movie, kind of chill us out a little bit and explore the, uh, the colder sides of the period piece. So, good one. Uh, So thank you so much, Doc, and we'll see you next week.
Adios. All right, Ghoul. we got a, uh, less than a minute left, so if you want to do the plug. All right, real quick. So you know who still has their clit? Um, you know why? She makes fucking jewelry at Bonfire Bee Designs. So get your girl something nice from Bonfire Bee Designs, okay? Go to the Etsy page. Be like, honey, I'm so happy you still have a clit. I like to flick your bean every now and again. It's a beautiful thing. Touch it, rub it, lick it, whatever the fuck you're going to do with it. But you know what? Adorn her with jewelry before you do that because you know what? Nothing oh. makes girls wetter down there than a nice piece of jewelry. Bonfire Beads Design. Etsy. Go ahead. All one word. Stay scared. Go ahead. No, stay scared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stay hard. Don't ejaculate blood. <laughs> yeah. Stay hard. Don't ejaculate blood. Only ejaculate semen. And until next we meet where we discuss Ravenous from 1999, Keep America Strong, watch horror movies. And like I had said, we'll post that link to Jennifer Rubin's GoFundMe later. So if you got any money in your wallet you're looking to spend, do it then. See you next time. Peace.